Let's take a look at a few more examples of the importance of allowing scripture to be its own interpreter. And I'm only going to mention some of these, we're not going to look up all of the verses because we don't have the time to really look up all of the verses. But uh, take for example Revelation 7 verse 9. It speaks of a great multitude which no one can number. And it tells us there that they have palm branches in their hands. Interesting, palm branches in their hands. Why would that be significant? Well, if you go to Leviticus 23 and verse 40, you're going to notice that on the Feast of Tabernacles, palm branches were born by those who celebrated the feast. So that must mean that the, this group, this unnumbered group, is celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, which means that have, they have just come from which feast? They have just come from the Day of Atonement, which is the previous feast. Interesting. And so you have to read what comes before that passage, and you'll see that they went through the Day of Atonement, and now they're victorious, they have palm branches, because they have gone through uh, the, the experience of the Day of Atonement. Uh, and then you have, of course, uh, I'll just go down to, uh, to the next page, uh, Revelation 13, verse 13, it speaks about the false prophet bringing fire down from heaven in the sight of men. Now, uh, if you go to the marginal reference, or if you go to a concordance, you're going to find an interesting connection between this verse and an experience that took place in the Old Testament. Who brought fire down from heaven in the Old Testament? It was Elijah who brought down fire. When he brought down fire were the multitudes persuaded that he was a prophet of God? Absolutely. But here in Revelation chapter 13, it speaks about the false prophet bringing fire down from heaven in the sight of men to persuade human beings to accept its message. Now, this false prophet must be a false prophet what? It must be a false Elijah. Because true Elijah brought fire down from heaven in the sight of men to persuade the multitudes that his message was from God. So if in Revelation uh, 13 you have a false prophet who brings fire down from heaven to persuade human beings that his message is correct, he must be a false prophet Elijah. So is there going to be a false Elijah at the end of time? Yes, just like there will be a false Christ. So it's very important for us to find the connection with the Old Testament, because it's when the fire came down that the people said, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. They were persuaded when the fire was joined with Elijah's message. Now, God did not allow the false prophets in the days of Elijah to bring fire down from heaven, but the deception is going to be even greater at the end of time because the false prophet will be allowed to bring fire down from heaven in the sight of men, and it will happen before the true fire falls. Ellen White says that before the great revival, Satan will seek to keep it from happening by introducing a counterfeit. And so uh, we need to connect uh, Revelation 13, 13 with 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 38. Uh, the next example, Revelation 15, verses 2 to 4. There refers to the song of Moses and the Lamb. Interesting. 
Where would you go to understand that a little bit better? The song of Moses and the Lamb. Yeah, I used to ask, you know, what does Moses have to do with the final deliverance? Well, you're going to sing the song of Moses. The deliverance in the end time is of the Lamb. It's not of Moses, so why Moses? The reason, and we're going to study this later on in, in the class, the reason is that there is a parallel between the events that led up to the singing of the song of Moses and the events that will lead up to the singing of the song of the Lamb. In other words, we're dealing with typology. And when Revelation says the song of Moses and the Lamb, immediately something uh, lights up in your brain and you say, ah, song of Moses and the Lamb. Is it just possible that the experience of Israel in the Old Testament, where they eventually sing the song of Moses, is parallel to the events that lead up to the second coming and the singing of the song of Moses and Moses and the Lamb. Are you with me? So in other words, we need to look at the marginal references. We need to look at a concordance to take us to the broader context so that we can allow one passage to interpret the other passage. And then we have, of course, the texts that speak about eternal fire. And I'm, I'm jumping over the one about washing their robes. You know, the, uh, maybe I should mention something about it. Revelation 22:14 says, uh, some versions say, blessed are those who do his commandments. Other versions say, blessed are those who wash their robes. There you have a, a textual problem, manuscript problem, because there are some ancient manuscripts that say, wash their robes, and there are some ancient manuscript, uh, manuscripts that say, keep his commandments, or do his commandments. So which is the correct uh, translation? Or which is the correct rendering, rather? Well, I believe that you have to look at all of the items in the text, and then you have to go back to the book of Genesis. You say, how is that? Well, let's take a look at Genesis. God placed the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve could eat from the tree of life and they could live forever if they obeyed the Lord, right? So what happened when they disobeyed? When they disobeyed, God cast them out of the garden, out of the gates of the garden. He placed angels at the gates so that they could not eat from the tree of life. And as a result came death and the curse. Is that in, is that, do we find that in Genesis? Yeah. Death and the curse? Revelation 22, 14 is simply reversing that. It'll tell you that, that the best translation is keep his commandments, because Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command, and they suffered the consequences. In Revelation 22, 14 it says, blessed are those who do his commandments different than Adam and Eve, do his commandments, that they might, what? Have a right to eat from where? From the tree of life, and may enter through what? Through the gates into the city. And incidentally, in Revelation it says there will be no more death, and there will be no more curse. Are you with me? And who is standing at the gates to let people in? Revelation 22 and verse 12 says, it is the angels. So what is the best translation of Revelation 22 verse 14 in the light of the context that we find elsewhere in the book of Genesis? See the tree of life, it's mentioned the tree of life, gates, angels, so you say now where do we find tree of life, gates, angels in another place in the Bible? And say ah Genesis 3, 
And so you go back to Genesis 3 and it helps you know that obedience is the issue. Are you following me or not? It's important for us to believe that the Bible is its own interpreter or the Bible is its own expositor. And of course the eternal fire texts, you know people come and they say, oh you know the fire is going to burn forever, it's going to burn forever, it says it's eternal fire. And you know what I say? Hallelujah, you're right. I say the fire is eternal, but not what the fire burns. See, even as Adventists, we, haven't, we don't have the complete concept of hell that we can explain to people, because the fire does not go out. See, usually we say, you know, Sodom, we use the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were reduced to ashes, and the fire went out. But the fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah did not go out, because the fire is God's glory. And God's glory is eternal. The Bible says that God is a devouring fire. So the fire is eternal, but not what the fire burns. And when you look at all of these texts that we find here, and I have several of them, uh, let's go to one of them, Exodus 24, Exodus 24, and verses 17 through 19. How do you suppose I found this passage in Exodus? How do you think I found this text in, in, in Exodus? Yeah, concordance, duh. It does help to use a concordance to make connections because the Holy Spirit superintended the composition of Scripture. He put within the Bible everything that we need to understand the Bible. That doesn't mean I'm without a job <laughs> because you still need teachers, but you need to compare what the teacher says with what Scripture says. Notice Exodus chapter 24 and verses 17 through 19. This is at Mount Sinai. And it says here, verses 17 through 19, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. What was the glory of God like? Like a consuming fire, so Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. And so what is the consuming fire? The consuming fire is the glory of the Lord. And Ellen White says in Great Controversy, she says, it's the glory of the Lord that destroys the wicked. And of course, after he destroys the wicked with his glory, his glory goes out. His glory is extinguished. No, the consuming fire continues forever, but God will have a people who have a fireproof character. <laughs> That's what God is doing now, he's fireproofing us so that we can dwell in the everlasting fire. You know, the, the story of the three young men who were thrown into the fiery furnace is a small scale illustration of what it will be like to live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. I didn't say that Jesus is going to forsake us. He's going to, Jesus is going to say, okay, folks, fend for yourselves. I'm out of here. No, no. He will not serve as an intercessor, but he will be a protector. Because if Jesus was not here protecting his people, none would be left alive. We need to, we need to let our youth know that, uh, you know that Jesus is still going to be here protecting his people. 
because sometimes we try to scare people by saying you'll have to leave all by yourself. Well, we'll have to we won't be able to send our sins into the sanctuary because the sanctuary will be closed. The 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 laundry will be closed forever. And so we have to send our clothes now. Because when the sanctuary closes, we will not be able to send sins into the sanctuary anymore. Intercession will be finished. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is going to forsake his people. You know the text that says, Jesus says, I will be with you always, even till the close of probation. That's not what he says. <laughs> he says, I will, with you, I will be with you always, even when? Unto the end of the world. He will continue being with his people. So does it help to look for other texts in the concordance and in the marginal references? It's indispensable, folks. We cannot take a text isolated from every other text in Scripture because the Holy Spirit superintended the composition of Scripture. He placed everything we need in different parts of the Bible to explain every single text of Scripture. Now we're on page 8. The Bible is like a body. It is one book with one message, but it has many members, right? The, book, the Bible is one book, one book, that's all I've got here. It has one message, but it has many members. That means 66 books. The, there is unity, one message. In diversity, which is different writers and styles, and mutuality, that is interaction of the parts. Are you following me or not? Without one organ, the body does not function to its optimum capacity. It might function, but it doesn't function to its optimum capacity. All parts of the Bible interact as a harmonious whole, just like the human body. One body, many members, interacting. So the Bible is one book, many members, but all of its parts are interacting and explaining one another. The words of the Bible, its expressions, its grammar, its vocabulary, its syntax, is just like that of any other book, because it was written in the language of human beings. Is that correct? Yeah. It's not given in some superhuman language, according to what Ellen White says. God doesn't speak to us in his language. He speaks to us his thoughts in the language of men. This makes it necessary, however, to understand all these literary characteristics within the cultural context in which the Bible was given. For example, the dragon beast of Revelation 17. I'm going to give you an illustration of that dragon beast. You know, uh, it's been misunderstood what that dragon beast is. You know, they portray him as a real nasty looking red beast, you know, with seven heads and ten horns distributed on the different heads. That ignores the cultural context in which Revelation 17 was written. Really, the heads, and this isn't going to make a lot of sense to you right now, but it will when you read the material in Revelation chapter 17. Really, the heads 
of this dragon beast are mountains. Because the ancients believed that mountains were heads of a great dragon. And what happens is that the heads or the mountains spew waters out of their mouth. And the water goes down the sides of the, of the mountain and then it all meets in a river that looks like the body of a dragon or a serpent. And Babylon, the, the harlot, sits upon the body of the dragon. But the body of the dragon is the waters on the body of the dragon. And the harlot sits on the mountains also because, because the mountains represent the kingdoms that she rules over. So is she sitting on the dragon? Yes. Is she sitting on the waters? Yes, because the waters are the body of the dragon. Is she sitting on the mountains? Yes, because the mountains are the heads. Are you understanding me? I'm going to give you an illustration of how the ancients believed. In fact, I'm going to give you an article that was written by a former teacher of mine, Douglas Waterhouse, who, who taught in the undergraduate school at Andrews University many years. He brought together all the ancient concept of, of, of river dragons. And so suddenly this begins to make sense. And by the way, you know, when, when the river flooded, according to the ancient concept, it's, it spread its wings. So it's a dragon with wings. And the Bible has this concept in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. It's speaking about the invasion of Sennacherib into the, into the land of Judah. And it says that he would flood, he would pass over, and he would extend his wings into the land of Emmanuel. And so you have this, this vivid concept. Of course, we know that mountains aren't, aren't uh, heads of dragons, and we know that the river is not the body of the dragon. It's just symbolism that is taken from the time, and John is using us to teach us about Bible prophecy. So is it important for us, then, to understand the cultural context in which the passage was given? Absolutely. Now let's go back here. What makes the Bible different than every other book? Is that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that gives life to the Bible. That's what makes the Bible unique and special above every other book. Let's use an analogy. The Bible is like a, the body created by God with all of its respective organic parts. Let me ask you, is everything in the Bible, is there everything in the Bible that you need to, to get the full message of salvation? It's all there, folks. It has all of the organic parts, just like your body does. God then breathed into the body the breath of life, and the body became a living organism with all of its interacting parts working harmoniously. Are you catching the analogy? When we read the Bible merely as literature, without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, it is like the body without the Spirit. It is a dead letter. By itself it has no life, but when the Spirit is connected with it, it becomes a living book to the reader. What gives life to the Bible is the union of the human words and expressions linked with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the reason why we can never understand the Bible unless we pray. 
and thus we pray for God's spirit. Our first principle. We'll come back and back and back to that again. Because if we don't, most likely we're going to reach wrong conclusions. And we'll fall into error. Now notice what Ellen White had to say here in Ministry of Healing 4.15. We're still using this analogy of the body. She says, in the creation of man was manifest the agency of a personal God. When God had made man in his image, the human form was perfect in all its arrangements, but it was without life. Is the Bible perfect in all of its parts? Yes it is, but what does it need? It needs the Holy Spirit. She says, then a personal self-existing God breathed into that form the breath of life and man became a living intelligent being. All parts of the human organism were set in motion. The heart, the arteries, the veins, the tongue, the hands, the feet, the senses, the faculties of the mind, all began their work and all were placed under law. Man became a living soul through Christ the Word. A personal God created man and endowed him with intelligence and with power. So let me ask you, do all of the parts of the Bible interact in a harmonious whole? Yes. Is that true of human books? It's not true of human books. Why? Because human books were not superintended by the Holy Spirit. They were not God-breathed. You understand that when, uh, when it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, it says all Scripture is God-breathed. That's why I'm using this analogy. It has to do with breath. The breath of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, it's simply like any other book. It has, you know, idioms, and it has verbs, and it has nouns, and it has tenses, and it has uh, definite articles and indefinite articles, and all those things. But unless you have the Spirit connected with it, it's a dead letter. This is the reason why Martin Luther said that prayer is the better half of the study. And Ellen White repeatedly affirmed that the Bible should never be studied without prayer. The Spirit who gave the Bible is the only one who can make it alive for us. Now notice these two statements. One is from Signs of the Times, April 6, 1891. The greatest blessing bestowed upon the world is the privilege of understanding the oracles of God. The word of God should not be a what? A dead letter to us. How would the Bible be a dead letter? Without the Holy Spirit. The word of God should not be a dead letter to us, but what? Spirit and life. For through the truth we are to be sanctified. Love that statement. The other statement is pamphlet 86, Special Testimony to the Church at Battle Creek, page 19. She says, read the second chapter of James. Practice the truth in your daily life, and you will know the work that the Lord has given you to do. Read also the fourth chapter, especially verses 5 through 12, and chapter 5, especially verses 13 to 20. These chapters are a dead letter. Can scripture be a dead letter? Oh yeah, when you don't connect it with the Spirit. These chapters are a dead letter to the larger number of those who claim to be Seventh-day Adventists. I am directed to point you to these scriptures 
and to the seventh chapter of Matthew, you need to study every word as for your life. Powerful statement. The reason why there are so many churches in the United States, and incidentally you've heard about this Tony Palmer thing, seen the Tony Palmer video? Do you know where he's coming from? Do you know who he is? Next Sabbath I'm going to be sharing some, you know, we need to check the historical background. <laughs> so some people just go to the internet, wow, look what Tony Palmer said. Who is Tony Palmer and why is he saying what he's saying? Well, Tony Palmer is an Anglican clergyman from a small segment of the Anglican communion in Ireland. He does not represent the Anglican church, the small segment, Celtic element. And do you know where he's coming from? Are you aware of the fact that the Anglican church has had hundreds of splits in the last few years? There are Anglican churches and communions everywhere, split, 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 split. So what does the devil do? The devil says Protestantism has caused the split in Christianity. That's what he's saying. He's saying Protestantism is to blame for the split in Christianity. So we need to come back home. Now I'm not justifying what he's saying, but it helps us understand a little more what he's saying and the urgency that he feels. Are you following me or not? And so it helps to know the historical background of this. The reason why there are so many churches in the United States is because people want to impose on the scriptures their meaning rather than allowing the scriptures to explain themselves. Now listen to this, important. We cannot allow any philosophy, newspaper article, book, television program, historical event, commentary, church interpretation, catechism, the majority or personal experience to determine the meaning of scripture. The Bible is the acid test of all of these. The Bible authenticates itself, just like salt and sugar do. Salt is not salty because I say so, but because it is its very nature to be salty. In other words, scripture authenticates itself. It authenticates its own inspiration. Not by any external declaration, but by what is contained internally within it. That's why we need to study scripture, folks. You know, I read very few books outside the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy anymore. I'm not saying that you shouldn't read, read books. Whenever I say this, people say, oh, Pastor Boris says you're not supposed to read any books. You know, the ABC will go out of business. And then I'd be speaking against myself because I wrote some books myself. <laughs> but what I'm saying, our primary study should be Scripture and the Spirit of Prophecy. That's where the special light of God is for these times. Now listen to what Ellen White has to say. I'm going to read you several statements from Ellen White on the Bible as its own interpreter. The first one is Child Guidance, page 511. Make the Bible its own expositor. Bringing together, now listen, this is an important principle, bringing together all that is said concerning a given subject. Now what Ellen White is saying here is, you can't just connect one verse with another verse that has nothing to do with that verse. Like some people do. You have to make sure that the verses that you're connecting are dealing with the same topic and the same theme. Or else you'll make mistakes. 
See, it has to be on the same subject. So she says, make the Bible its own expositor, bringing together all that is said concerning a given subject at different times and under varied circumstances. So she says, um, the message was given at different times and under varied circumstances, but you can bring together what is in those different places as long as it deals with the same subject. And one passage will explain another passage. That's why she says the Bible is its own expositor. Christian education, page 85. The Bible is its own expositor. One passage, now listen, here's the principle, one passage will prove to be a key that will unlock other passages. And in this way light will be shed upon the hidden meaning of the word. How do we discover the hidden meaning of the word? By what? Comparing one passage with another passage. She says that's the key that opens. She continues saying, by comparing different texts treating on the same subject, see there it is again, on the same subject, viewing their bearing on every side, the true meaning of the scriptures will be made evident. Many think that they must consult commentaries. See, she's making my case now. Many think that they must consult commentaries on the scriptures in order to understand the meaning of the word of God. And we would not take the position that commentaries should not be studied. But it will take much discernment to discover the truth of God under the mass of the words of men. <laughs> In other words, whatever you read, compare with Scripture. Make Scripture supreme. In other words, here's one counsels to teachers, page 462. The Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the word as a what? See, here's the body analogy. As a whole and to see the relation of its parts. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme. See, that's one message. God's, of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy, and of the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for the supremacy and should learn to trace their working through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. Now listen, he should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience. How in every act of life he himself reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives, and how, whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. So she's saying that whenever we study the Bible, we should, see, we should find the central theme, which is the great controversy between good and evil, and the victory of good over evil. Manuscript Releases, Volume 2, page 96. Nothing is to be gained by endeavoring to prove by argument the divine origin of the Bible. Don't waste your time trying to prove to somebody who doesn't believe that the Bible is inspired, trying to prove that the Bible is inspired. They need to, they need to taste it for themselves and come to their own conclusion. Have you ever tried to convince someone that salt is salty when they've never tasted salt before? It's an impossibility. You know, trying to convince someone that the Bible is inspired, 
is a useless task. We can use all kinds of arguments, but many times they have counterarguments. They say the unity of Scripture. Oh, but they can show examples of what they consider to be disunity, like the, the death of Judas, for example. Uh, miracles. They say, well, I don't see any of those things happening now. Oh, but look at the fruit of the life. You know, people who have embraced the Bible, you know, they're, they're, they have a different life. Well, I know a lot of Christians that have embraced the Bible, and they're pretty nasty. So you can use all kinds of arguments. But people have to taste it for themselves and be persuaded by the internal content of the Bible. So she says, nothing is gained by endeavoring to prove by argument the divine origin of the Bible. It is its own expositor. It carries its own keys. Scripture unlocks Scripture. That's sola scriptura. Our High Calling, page 207. The Bible is its own interpreter. With beautiful simplicity, one portion connects itself with the truth of another portion until the whole Bible is blended in one harmonious whole. Isn't that a beautiful way of putting it? Light flashes forth from one text to illuminate some portion of the word that has seemed more obscure. So when you find an obscure text, or difficult to understand, what do you do? You find texts that are clearer and interpret the obscure text in the light of the clear text. Testimonies for the Church, volume 4, page 499. She says, listen carefully, this is an important principle. When you search the scriptures with an earnest desire to learn the truth, is it dangerous to search the scriptures to prove what we believe? Hmm. Yes. When you search the scriptures with an earnest desire to learn the truth, God will what? Ah, here's the, here's the help of the Holy Spirit. God will breathe His Spirit into your heart and impress your mind with the light of His Word. The Bible is its own interpreter, one passage explaining another. By comparing scriptures referring, here's the, the principle again, referring to what? The same subject. Don't connect verses that shouldn't be connected. They have to deal with the same theme, the same topic. This is not the proof text method, which has been greatly maligned, by the way. You can't use the proof text method. You can, as long as the texts are dealing with the same theme. So she says, by comparing scriptures referring to the same subjects, you will see beauty and harmony of which you have never dreamed. William Miller. What was William Miller? Were you aware that he got his PhD from Princeton? You didn't know that? Well, he didn't. <laughs> what was William Miller? A farmer! Have mercy, nothing against farmers. Farmers probably can learn a lot about the word because the word is like seed. Falls into the earth, dies, germinates, grows, bears fruit. There you have the message of the Bible in itself. William Miller used the Bible and Cruden's Concordance. He studied for 13 years using only the Bible and the Concordance. And said, you know, there's three concordances. There's Young's, Strong's, and Cruden's. And at the seminary they used to say Strong's is for the strong. Young's is for the young. 
and prudence is for the crude. <laughs> but that doesn't apply to William Miller, because William Miller was not crude in his interpretation of the Bible. He was a farmer. If a farmer could come to the conclusions that he came to, can't any person in the world come to an understanding of God's word without having a postgraduate PhD? I'm not saying anything wrong about PhD or education. I'm not a PhD. I have two master's degrees. But the more I study, the more I realize that I don't know very much. Because the more we study, say, why didn't I know that before? And why didn't I know that before? And so we come to the point where we say, I know nothing. Listen, folks, we know just barely enough to get up there. When we get up there, we'll be studying throughout eternity. Hello? So how much do we know? We think we know a lot, but we know very little compared to what there is yet to know. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand Scripture. Now notice this statement about William Miller's methods of Bible study. William, there are several things here. William Miller possessed strong mental powers. I think he was careful with his health habits. Does it, uh, is it necessary to have good health habits to have a clear mind? Mm -hmm. Health reform comes in here. William Miller possessed strong mental powers, listen carefully, disciplined by thought and study. And he added to these the wisdom of heaven. I love that. <laughs> See, he was disciplined. He thought a lot. He studied a lot. But she says that, the, that to these were added the wisdom of heaven. By connecting himself with the source of wisdom. He was a man of sterling worth who could not but command respect and esteem wherever integrity of character and moral excellence were valued. Now listen, he continues, she continues saying, United true kindness of heart with Christian humility and the power of self-control, he was attentive and affable to all, ready to listen to the opinions of others and to weigh their arguments. Without passion or excitement, he tested all theories and doctrines by the word of God. And his sound reasoning and thorough knowledge of the scriptures enabled him to refute error and expose falsehood. That's Great Controversy 335. In Great Controversy 320 and 321, Ellen White amplifies the methods of study of William Miller. She says, endeavoring to lay aside all preconceived opinions. That's difficult, isn't it? For us to lay aside all of our presupposed uh, ideas, all the baggage that we have. I've had to do that, that many times with many things that have been believed and that I was taught. I've had to study scripture and reevaluate lots of things I used to believe. Like I used to believe the 24 elders were those who resurrected with Jesus, that ascended when Jesus ascended. Upon further study, I, I, I can't reach that conclusion anymore. You know, and, and uh, there, there are so many things that, that I used to believe. You know, we use this text, Daniel 12, verse 4, where it says, uh, you know, seal the book until the time of the end, but at the time of the end, uh, the book will be unsealed and knowledge will be increased. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. And so we use that text in evangelism to say, you know, that uh, 
uh, scientific knowledge is going to greatly increase. There's going to be rockets and there's going to be uh, automobiles and there's going to be airplanes and electric toothbrushes and, and all these all this technology. Because knowledge is going to be increased. Well, the fact is, the word knowledge there is the Hebrew word yada, which refers to knowledge of the book of Daniel. That's the context. It's much more powerful because you can go back to the 1830s and say, hey, in the time of the end, look, here's a group that did it. Much more powerful than talking about airplanes. No, the Bible doesn't, as far as I know, the Bible doesn't talk about airplanes and nuclear weapons and all those things, you know? What the text is saying that, that money's, many are going to run to and fro, the same idiom that's used in Amos 8, 11, and 12, where it says that, that many will run from, from sea to sea, from north to south, from north to east, looking for the word of God. In other words, it's the eyes moving over, over the book because now the book can be understood. And so we have to lay aside our preconceived opinions. Endeavoring to lay aside all preconceived opinions and dispensing with commentaries. Hmm. He compared scripture with scripture. There's sola scriptura. By the aid of the marginal references and the concordance. My, my. That's what we've been talking about. He pursued his study in a regular and methodical manner. What does that mean? It takes discipline, right? You said, I'm going, to, I'm going to sit and I'm going to study this text until the Holy Spirit shows me what it means. He pursued his study in a regular and methodical manner, beginning with Genesis and reading verse by verse. He proceeded no faster than the meaning of the several passages so unfolded as to leave him free from all embarrassment. When he found anything obscure, here's another principle, it was his custom to compare it with every other text which seemed to have any reference to the matter under consideration. See the principle? Connected with what he was studying, not just concoct a bunch of verses and put them all together. Every word was permitted to have its proper bearing upon the subject of the text. And if his view of it harmonized with every collateral passage, it ceased to be a difficulty. So that's scripture, all of scripture. Thus, whenever he met with a passage hard to be understood, he found an explanation in some other portion of the scriptures. As he studied with earnest prayer, see here's another principle, with earnest prayer, for divine enlightenment, that which had before appeared dark to his understanding was made clear. He experienced the truth of the psalmist's words, the entrance of thy words giveth what? Light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. And it's somewhat disturbing that uh, you know there's so much of a movement these days to say that ministers have to have a certain level, level of education in order to be ministers. I don't find that as a qualification of ministers or elders in the Bible. I don't find on the list of qualifications he must, be, he must have a master's degree. I don't even find he must have a bachelor of arts degree. I, I fail to find that. There's all kinds of moral qualities that they must have. 
but not necessarily an arbitrary standard of having a certain level of, of education. That would disqualify Jesus Christ. It would disqualify all of the apostles, or most of the apostles. It would disqualify many of the great, great preachers and leaders throughout Christian history. I'm not denigrating education. I'm not saying that education is bad, but education can become an idol. Knowledge puffs up, is what the Apostle Paul says, because we, we come to think that we're pretty smart and pretty brilliant. Now, notice what she continues saying. With intense interest, he studied the books of Daniel and Revelation, employing, listen carefully, the same principles of, of interpretation as in other scriptures, and found to his great joy that the prophetic symbols could be understood. He saw that the prophecies, so far as they had been fulfilled, had been fulfilled literally. That doesn't mean that everything in the prophecies were literal, but they had been fulfilled literally. That all the various figures, metaphors, parables, similitudes were either explained in their immediate connection, that is in the immediate context, or the terms in which they were expressed were defined in other scriptures. And when thus explained, were to be literally understood. And now she quotes Miller, I was thus satisfied, he says, that the Bible is a system of revealed truths. So clearly and simply given that the wayfaring man, though a fool, need not err therein. Link after link of the chain of truth rewarded his efforts as step by step he traced down the great lines of prophecy, angels of heaven, were guiding his mind, opening the scriptures to his understanding. Aren't those some amazing statements? They have all kinds of principles of Bible study in these statements that I've read from the Spirit of Prophecy. And incidentally, if I may, may, might make a little parenthesis here, um, we are going to be looking at one of the principles of Bible study, of prophetic study, is that we need to understand the sanctuary. That's one of the big principles, because both Daniel and Revelation are organized according to the Hebrew sanctuary. That's the real reason why uh, Christendom does not understand Daniel and Revelation, is because they do not understand the sanctuary. And I might say this, this we, call, we call the sanctuary the sanctuary doctrine. The sanctuary is not a doctrine of the Adventist church. The sanctuary explains all of the doctrines of the Adventist church. Ellen White said it is the foundation of our faith. Let me ask you, does the foundation only hold up one section of the building? No, the foundation upholds the total building. The sanctuary is not a, a doctrine among other doctrines. It is the doctrine that unites everything in a chain or in a whole. That's the reason why Christians can't make sense out of the Seventh-day Adventist church, is because they're all caught up in the court, at the cross, at the altar, and they have spiritual myopia. All they can see, the cross, but they can't see the implications of the cross in the rest of the sanctuary. They can't see that salvation has several steps. Actually the sanctuary begins in the camp. You will usually begin the sanctuary in the court, 
at the altar, wrong place. You have to begin in the camp. You say, why do we begin in the camp? Because the lamb, before it was sacrificed, had to be an unblemished lamb, and Jesus had to live a perfect life before his sacrifice was accepted. His life in our midst, he tabernacled among us. The word dwelt can be translated tabernacle. He tabernacled among us, and he lived the perfect life that the law requires from us. But he did that in the camp where we live. And then he went to the altar of sacrifice and died on the cross. Then he went to the laver and he resurrected. And then he entered the holy place to apply his life and his death to those who come to him in repentance and confessing their sins. And then he moves into the most holy place and he performs a work of atonement in the most holy place. And then at the end he comes out and he places the sins that have been forgiven the scapegoat doesn't forgive sins. The scapegoat has forgiven sins placed on him. They're forgiven of the saints, but not of him. Then the, the, the high priest comes out and he places them on the head of the scapegoat, who is the original originator and instigator of sin. The great controversy theme in the, in the sanctuary is that which explains our total worldview. The sanctuary is the Seventh-day Adventist worldview. And all of the doctrines fit within some part of the Hebrew sanctuary. It's not a doctrine. It gives an explanation to all of our doctrines. It is the worldview of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it's sad that very little is being said these days about the sanctuary. I like to compare it with this. You have a, a, a painting on the wall. The painting on the wall is like the worldview, the sanctuary, and the individual parts that you find on that, uh, on that painting are the doctrines, okay? Because you have objects, you have trees, you have little rivers, you have birds flying there. Each one of those is like a doctrine. The sanctuary doctrine brings it all together in a beautiful portrait. It's that which brings together the entire Seventh-day Adventist message. And you know, we're going to notice a little bit later on, it's interesting that the very truths that the world rejects, that the Christian world rejects, are the distinctive truths of the most holy place. Do you know what present truth is? It's very simple. Discover where Jesus is and what he's doing and preach that because that's present truth. And Jesus is not now in the court dying on the cross. Not that the death of Christ is not important. He, there can be no day of atonement without the cross. There can be no intercession of Jesus without the cross. There can be no cross without the perfect life of Jesus. They're all important. But the previous steps need to be understood. The cross needs to be understood in the context of the day of atonement. And if you don't, you're preaching truth, but you're not preaching present truth. We'll come back to that later on. Uriah Smith in many ways a great scholar of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, wrote some phenomenal stuff. But he allowed himself to go off track because of what the newspapers say. See, uh, the Adventist Church originally believed that the King of the North is the papacy. But in his day, you know, Turkey was in the news. And so Uriah Smith says, Turkey has to be somewhere in the Bible. 
and so he plugged Turkey into the prophecy of the king of the north in Daniel 11, which we'll study later on in this, in this series. He was allowing the newspaper to dictate what the Bible means. And he did the same thing with the battle of Armageddon. He spoke of this great battle in the Middle East, in the valley of Megiddo, the Euphrates, literal Euphrates was going to be dried up and the Chinese were going to come from the east. Totally false prophecy. But it was dictated by what he read in the newspapers of his day. Let me ask you, do uh, evangelical Christians do the same today? Oh, futurism galore. Every nasty person that appears on the, on the scenario, there's a book written that he's, he's the Antichrist. Mussolini, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, the Ayatollah Khomeini, even Henry Kissinger. Candidates for Antichrist, pure speculation, because they don't follow the historicist method of interpreting prophecy, which we're going to take a look at. It's one of our principles. What method do we use to interpret prophecy? We allow the Bible method to dictate how we interpret prophecy. Sunday observance. How did Sunday observance come to be adopted? Well, let's read Great Controversy, page 448. See, imposing on Scripture what you want or what other people say, what the preacher says, what the newspaper says, or what the commentaries say. We cannot depend on any source other than the Bible itself. Doesn't mean that we can't use other sources, but they have to be in harmony with the Bible. She says, the Roman church has not relinquished her claim to supremacy. And when the world and the Protestant churches accept a Sabbath of her own creating, while they reject the Bible Sabbath, they virtually admit this assumption. They may claim the authority of tradition and of the fathers for the change, but in so doing they ignore the very principle which separates them from Rome. And what is that principle? That the Bible and the Bible only is the religion of Protestants. That's sola scriptura. You allow the Bible to interpret itself. And they, they, For example, Revelation 1 verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. They say, well, the Lord's day there is Sunday. And why? Because, because uh, at that time, you had church fathers, early church fathers, who were referring to Sunday as the Lord's day. And so what they do is they take these early church fathers and say, see, John meant what they meant. But they don't go to the Bible where 23 times the Bible says that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. They don't go to Mark 2 verse 27 where it says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. They don't allow scripture to interpret scripture. They go to an external source, the early church fathers, and they impose its meaning on scripture because that's what they want. Prophets and Kings 537. The present is a time of overwhelming interest to all living. Rulers and statesmen, men who occupy positions of trust and authority, thinking men and women of all classes have their attention fixed upon the events taking place about us. They are watching the relations that exist among nations. They observe the intensity that is taking possession of every earthly element, and they recognize that something great and decisive is about to take place. The world, that the world is on the verge of a stupendous crisis. The Bible and the Bible only gives a correct view of these things. 
Here are revealed the great final scenes in the history of our world, events that already are casting their shadows before the sound of their approach causing the earth to tremble and men's hearts to fail them for fear. So the religion of Adventists is the religion of sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only, the Bible interprets itself by comparing one text with another text. But in a postmodern world, you know what postmodernism says the standard is? Everyone has their own internal standard of right and wrong, of good and evil. It's what the devil told Eve. He says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You don't have to depend on God to tell you what good and evil is. You'll be like him. You'll be able to define good and evil yourself. First postmodern in the history of, of this world was the devil's argument. It would have been much simpler for Eve simply to say to the serpent, to the devil, you know what? The fruit looks good. It looks tasty. What you say sounds logical, that God told us not to eat from the tree because he knew that we would be like him and he doesn't want any rivals. You know, and, it, and you say that it will make me wise. And you know, I never knew a serpent could talk. That's a miracle. But if she had said, I see, I hear, I reason, there's only one problem. And that is, that we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God said, don't eat, and therefore we don't eat. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.